Hey guys, this is Pastor Zach, and you are listening to Sermon Notes here at HPC. Turn with me to the book of Matthew. Um, and this is another one of those, uh, I'm just going to give the disclaimer, this should have been a four-part series. Um, and I know that now, and then I was like, oh, I could do this in four parts leading up to Christmas, but we'd have to come out every night this week in order to do it. So we're just going to do it all in one message, and I'm going to ask the Lord to kind of do the, uh, the breakdown along with Luke Rock and his crew um, with you, because there's so much here. And even as I was talking about with Pastor Kurt last night, there's, there are places in this that I, I wanted to dive in and do research. And, and then sometimes I think the Lord will give us a message in a time. I've, I've, I've looked back over the course of writing sermons, and many of you who are speaking or teaching or doing classes or Bible studies in different places, and you may be able to relate to this, but the idea is the Lord knows when you have a busy week. He knows when there's a lot going on in your life. And sometimes he'll give you something because you don't have time to go any deeper on it. And he doesn't want you to because what he wants us to glean is maybe to skim a few feet off the top of this and then over time chew on it and go deeper. So um, there's a lot here. It's one verse. Uh, and we're not even quite to Christmas yet. Um, but it's one verse. And I want to just read this one verse to you. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. How many of you have read that and you just thought, wow, what a powerfully profound <laughs> piece of you know, revelation there? I, I, uh, I got to admit, the older I get, the more the Lord is like, has me backpedaling into like deeper into some of these things. And this is one of those verses that I just opened and read to. And I, and I was like, oh, man, really? And now while there's a part of me that wants to um, get into numerology and, and like break down every historical aspect of this, there simply wasn't time. Some of you are like, thank God, I just have no interest in that whatsoever. And then some of you guys are like, that's what I'm here for. Like, you're wasting my time. Uh, go deeper, go deeper in this, all right? So Matthew 17, I want to talk about each of these uh, sort of eras. Um, they were a moment in time, but they were also in an era, and they were also an indicator of covenant. And uh, there's a reason why Matthew, who's uh, a publican, by the way, he's a tax collector, he's a, he's a, he's a numbers guy, okay? Matthew's a, a numbers guy, and for him, it would have been significant to look over the, 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 the quarters of history from Father Abraham, who had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, he was one of them, and so were you, and, and as he's doing the math, he's saying, well, this is interesting, so if I break down the quarters, if I break down, you know, the tax quarters between Abraham and Jesus, something significant was taking place from heaven's perspective. And the precursor to this is we have to have heaven's perspective. We have to see what God was seeing. And that's why I love the gospel of John, because so much of John is written. A lot of the same stories are there but they're just written from a different perspective. 
And, um, but, but here we see someone who's recognizing, okay, there's a historical aspect to this, but, but so much of the, the vibrancy and the robustness of Jesus's fulfillment of prophecy, we see it laid out over time. And so there's a, there's a, 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 a theology that's based on covenant. And there are specific covenants going back to the Adamic with Adam and Eve in the garden. And we see the Abrahamic, we see the Mosaic, we see the Noahic. Uh, we see all these different covenants throughout scripture coming into the new covenant with Jesus. Um, but I don't necessarily want to talk about these four eras and the covenants they represent um, like sort of superimposed over what you already know about covenants. Okay, I know some of you have read books and you've taken classes in the Noahic covenant with the rainbow and all this stuff. There's a lot to be said about all that that we just don't have time for. So what we do have time for, though, is to talk through these eras and what was happening. It started with Abraham, right? We know it didn't really start with Abraham, but it started with Abraham in the sense of covenant, in the sense of a nation being promised. And so I want to just a quick one word description of, of Abraham's covenant. It was a covenant of promise. If you're writing things down and you're underlining that area in your Bible, understand that these generations started with promise. The 414s started with promise. Now, the father made some promises to Abraham over the course of their walk together, their relationship their friendship, as the Bible says, and every one of them was upheld through seasons of doubt, through seasons of failure, through, through seasons of Abraham like just outright lying, like, like trying to take God's will and make it happen in his own hands. There were, there were epic fails on Abraham's part, but God kept his promises to Abraham, and he still is keeping his promises to Abraham. I'm not going to get into those promises. We're not going to, again, go back through scripture and, and break down every single one of these. It would have been fun to do. But I think maybe we would have lost the bigger picture if we got super granular. That's one of Frank's, uh, Lucas's favorite words, granular, when we get too small. But what I want to point out is that God is a God of promise. And his relationship with us starts with promise. Not even, it's, it's like promise before it's even covenant. Covenant, the difference between promise and covenant is I can make you a promise and whatever you do has little effect on that. I'm gonna keep my promise regardless of who you are in it or where you are in it. Covenant means that it's something that we are both covenanting with each other. And that my end of the covenant depends on your end being upheld and your end depends on my end. That's why we call marriage a covenant, okay? So we can make promises to each other all day and have to keep those things, but a covenant requires a, a committal from both parties. So I wanna ask this this morning because I think that as Matthew's writing this down, inspired by the Holy Spirit to, to do this math and break down these generations, I don't even know if he was thinking 2,000 years from now, people are going to be reading this and they're going to be thinking about the significance of each one of these. But what I want to ask of you this morning is, have you had anybody ever break a promise to you? Maybe a big one? 
maybe a huge promise. Or maybe you've lived what has seemed like a lifetime of a million broken promises. Maybe that's you in here this morning, and maybe you, you feel like, yep, that sums it up. Just, in fact, I remember um, when I was a kid in Illinois, uh, my parents were divorced, and there was a ministry uh, at a church, I don't know, like 45 minutes or an hour away from us, um, four broken families to go to. And they were so encouraging and uplifting that they named this entire ministry Broken Promise. Okay, it was just super just encouraging. <laughs> and so my mom would put us all in the car with her other divorced friend and her kids. And we would all like broken, two broken promised families driving an hour in the car. What do we have in common? Broken promises. And then we're going to go to this ministry called Broken Promise. And I remember one thing about it, and it's not worth mentioning. But the deal is, is that it, it can get almost a little like, it, it can become sort of an easy target for us to be identified with the promises that have been broken in our lives. We have small groups for divorcees. We have, you know, we, 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 we orchestrate ministries and write songs around the idea of prodigals coming home and all of these things that are so scripturally true and prevalent. But sometimes our life defaults to brokenness. And I think it's really important that Matthew sort of breaks the ice of Jesus' coming with this idea of, of a covenant of promise. Because here's the deal. People break promises, but God never does. He is a God of promise. And this is so true also for those of you in the room and you've been on the breaking end. Usually these ministries for for folks, usually the messages centered around brokenness, it's, it's kind of um, driven home to the victim or the, the receiving end of the brokenness. But if you've been on the breaking end, like, like if you were really real with yourself and you look back over your life and you said, no, I broke that. Like if, we, if, we're, if we're maturing in the Lord and we can begin to take ownership for places where we've messed up, I want you to know that that covenant of promise is as much for you. God being a God of promise, the agreement that he made with Abraham, again, Abraham was not perfect. Abraham lied twice about his, his own marriage to save his own behind. And, and I feel like we need to get real with who some of these men and women were in scripture who God chose and appointed and anointed and, and made covenantal promises with them for the sole purpose of making a statement. And the statement is, regardless of whether you're on the breaking end of this or the broken end, this promise is for you. This covenant is with you. So from the generations from Abraham to David. David. David understood both sides of the breaking, didn't he? But the covenant with David, who stood on the promises, by the way, made with Abraham, 
David still in the Psalms writing through God's faithfulness to Abraham and understanding who he was. David even mentioning this idea of Melchizedek, the, the high priest of Salem who came and met with Abraham. And, and David standing in the gap between Abraham and Jesus and saying, there's a new one coming, right? This Messiah, it's this idea of he's coming in this order. This idea of, of there's something here that's beyond us. Abraham understood it and he touched it. And so standing on the promises of Abraham, promises of God made to Abraham, comes David. And with David was made a covenant of proximity. If you're writing things down, write down proximity. David reveals a lot of things about the heart of God. Things like the fact that God wanted intimacy. God wanted vulnerability. God wanted relationship. God wanted proximity. And he found in David a heart that understood this and wanted it too. And so with David, he makes this covenant. And I want to just make a couple of points about the covenant with David. We're not going to turn back to 2 Samuel. We're not going to get into, you know, the story itself. But the covenant with David was made as a result of David wanting God closer to him. We, 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 we always, like, focus on the fact that he wanted to build him a house. But what he wanted was the ark brought in near him. He said, what am I doing living here while you're out there? For David, yes, he's saying, well, if we're going to build a place for God, it's going to be the most opulent, crazy, gold-encrusted, bedazzled place ever, okay? But I, I don't really care as long as it's close. And so he was in such a hurry, in fact, to get the ark to him that he kind of messed that up too. And again, we're not going to get into all the details but finally, he goes back, he gets it right, and he gets God close. He wanted God close, like right outside the door. He wanted that ark. He wanted that temple right there. God saw it in him, and he loved it. The covenant with David was made as a result of David wanting God closer to him. And the idea of David's throne lasting forever was only a covenant. That was the covenant, by the way. If you remember God saying to David, he's like, hey, who told you I wanted a house? I never said that, but I love that you love me. I want you to want me. I need you to need me. <laughs> and so as, as God sees this in David, he says, okay, because you've got this right, because you see this, because you want this, your throne's gonna last forever. Now, watch this. David's throne lasting forever was only a covenant because the Lord said he would be the one to establish it. In, in a sense, okay, David, you want me and you want proximity with me. And so this covenant is that I will be the one to install someone from your line on the throne forever. It will be me. He's not just saying, hey, good job out there, kid. Good luck. Like, yeah, like, go do your thing, have your way, and I'll, and I'll be watching back from a distance clapping. He's saying, no, I will establish every generation to come on your throne. I will be the one to ensure that a man from your bloodline sits on this throne forever because you want me there with you. That's the covenant. 
proximity. It was always about intimacy. It was always about closeness. And so standing on those promises, and that can be an issue for us sometimes. We, we like to cling to the promises of Abraham, right? We like that we're grafted in. We like that we're going to be the head and not the tail. We love all the promises made to Abraham, don't we? But if you're going to stand on them, then you're going to find yourself at that place of David. And the next thing that God wants is proximity. So moving on from proximity, I just, I want to make a note here because I think that, again, you know me with the story of David. I can get a little uh, passionate about it. It's like every time we do a fireside, I'm like talking about David and I'm crying my eyes out. And it's like, Zach, really? This is like people's first time coming in, you know, just hold it together. And I'm like, but David, you love God so much. <laughs> Maybe you're in the room and you feel lonely. In a room of 500, 1,000, 25,000 people, you feel lonely or isolated, or alienated, maybe at a dinner table with a family that doesn't understand you or doesn't want to. You feel alone, maybe even by the people who should love you the most. Or maybe you're in here this morning, saints, and your biggest disappointment in your life, your biggest disappointments have been that you haven't had the relationships that you wanted or that you thought you've earned or deserved. Like you're kind of always on the outside trying to break into something. People don't notice you or value you or pull you into their circle. And I want you to know that the Lord sees you. He sees you and he wants that proximity with you what we've been trying to fill with other people, unmet expectation after unmet expectation after unmet expectation. Until you're in proximity with him, nothing else will meet that expectation. And once you are, nothing else matters. <laughs> Keep clapping while I take a drink of coffee. I'm just kidding. If I, <laughs> no, no, really, but I, I, I try, I need to keep this closer. I'm trying to not waste time here. It's, it's, I think we've got to get, we've got to see this about David. David went through seasons of being despised, being lied about, being chased, his life being sought after, a reward for his head going up, and being a celebrity. Being, being uh, you know, the name in all the pop songs, being the, the one who, who was leading military victory after military victory after military victory. He, he was the one, and, and, you know, he was a musician, which is always like a few extra clicks for guys, you know. Remember middle school? It was like, hey, if you can't pick up chicks, pick up a guitar, you know? It's like a chick magnet. And uh, I never played the guitar because I never had that problem, but I, I just feel like... Uh, just kidding. 
you can't really pick up a piano. So it's just like, hey, guys, come over here and watch me play. <laughs> it's the flute up the sleeve. That one never worked. Jazz flute. Yeah, it's powerful. It's powerful. The, the idea is, you know, you've heard me say up here before, and it's statistically factual that we live in uh, the most interconnected socially era of the entire history of the world. And that's not even that far of a stretch. Like, okay, like everybody has a smartphone in their pocket and on it, you can literally be connected to people in every single country around the world all at the same time. And yet, statistically, we are the loneliest generation to have ever walked the earth. How can that be? Because we know we want proximity, but we're filling it or we're seeking to with a seat at someone else's table. If I can get into that circle, if I can get into that college, if I can get into that job, if I can get into that position, if I can marry into that family, if I can, if I can uh, get into that uh, circle of people or sphere of influence or whatever it is, and there's a drive in us to want these things and to seek them out and to go after them, sometimes sacrificing things that were never meant to be sacrificed in order to get there, only to find that the need really isn't met nor will it ever be met until the one table where there's always a seat for you, the one table that was prepared for you, the one table that was set by the hands that created the heavens and the earth, till you find your way there and you sit in his presence and you eat with him, you fellowship with him, you break bread in proximity with him and then who cares? Who cares? Who cares who else knows my name? Who cares who else has a hit out on my life? I'm with the Lord either way. Who cares who else is lying about me or cheating about me or whatever else? Uh, Ashley had to remind me this week, uh, you know, we're going through something and, um, and we went through it a number of years ago and there was a posture that the Lord told me to take and I took it and it was totally counterintuitive because we felt like we were maybe risking um, some of the reputation of the church, some of the reputation of the ministry here. And, uh, and, but the Lord was very clear, this is the posture you're to take. And, and I was like, all right, Lord, we'll do that. And I was public about it and we just went on and I want you, the Lord like just blessed it, just like touched it, spoke over it, blessed it. And it was like wildly counterintuitively fruitful uh, instead of the other way. And as we're kind of like approaching a threshold again um, in some things, Ashley's like, Zach, God told you how your heart should look going into this. You remember that? And I'm like, man, I was so far from that. And it was only, it's like a few years ago, you know? And, and I'm like, I'm so far from that. How, Lord, how have I gotten so, and, and it's, no, come back to that place. And so as my wife and the Holy Spirit, who are usually in league together in my house against me, um, as, they, uh, as they made that very clear, I, I realized it. And, and you know what? 
it just whisked away any concern that I had. It whisked away like any, any fear that might've been knocking at the door saying, hey, but what if, well, who cares? I'm at the table of a king. Who cares how broken my legs are? I was carried here. Who cares how hungry I was yesterday? Today, we dine on heaven. That's the invitation, a covenant of proximity. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, comma, 14 generations. Now, the covenant in Babylon was not, was different than the other covenants. So with Adam, with Noah, with Moses, with Abraham, all these guys, the covenant was very clear. Um, it was like God himself or a man of God and, uh, you know, sort of making this agreement together. It's Abraham, hey, take these birds, cut them in half, walk through them, you know, light something on fire and all right, we're good. Now with Babylon and the exile, things start to take a little different um, turn. And what we see is the prophetic voice in Israel uh, start to take off in a big way. And as it does, uh, the sort of covenantal relationship starts to become a prophetic dialogue um, between God and his prophets and between his prophets and the people. And so, oh, that was kind of a cool time to do that. Yeah, I like that. Derek, we should cue up some sound effects to go with my... Get, can you get with Ben from the podcast and we'll see if we can start to liven up these messages a little bit. That'd be really helpful. If you're writing things down, the covenant in Babylon was one of preservation. So we start on promise. He loved us first. We start on promise and it drives us. It hurls us towards proximity. But how many of you know that just because you sit at a king's table doesn't mean you don't have any problems? Just because you're invited to eat dinner with Jesus doesn't mean that all day long you didn't go through hell to get there. And then you got to go back to it when you get up. And I know that for some of you, and because I've heard from some of you, it's like Sunday is that place. Sunday is that place. And you, you're like so unashamed to just before there's ever an offering to come to the altar, you're like at the altar. Um, Tuesday night, same way. It's like people are like, yeah, this is my place. This is where I get together with the Lord. And, and I'm undistracted and everything's off. I leave my phone in the car and I take my watch off and, you know, I get on my face. And I love that. But I know that there's real life still. And the Lord knows there's real life still. And part of real life, part of the consequence of real life was Babylon. And so I want to talk about this for a second because this covenant, again, shows up prophetically. It's a little different, but it reveals a grace that carries the remnant through seasons of bondage and consequence. A covenant of preservation is really God's grace on you, not saying you're not going to go through a hard time. It's saying you're going to go through a hard time and I'm going to be with you when you do. It's like, taking a little bit of the meal you ate home in a doggy bag and eating on it, chewing on it, living on the goodness of God through that season, through the lows or the night or the whatever. The remnant was a people who at the time of uh, this all taking place, the remnant theology started to surface, this idea that God would always preserve for himself a group of people whose heart was still after him regardless of 
the situation or the circumstance. It was easy for your heart to be for God when you're living in the promises and you're in proximity and you're winning every fight and it's, you know, it's rainbows and cupcakes and roses. Uh, but what happens when we're carried off into exile? What happens when we find ourselves back in bondage? Again, the remnant was a people at the time of this covenant was made. These people were not living in freedom. They were not in the original place God called them to be. And they were most certainly not in a picture of God's perfect plan, at least to the naked eye. Again, for seeing from God's eye, we'll see a different story. But the Lord said, hey, if you'll serve me even here, if you'll be faithful to me even here, if you'll receive what it is that I need you to learn about me and about giving yourselves, I'll make you the remnant and I'll bring you through it and out the other side. Preservation, a covenant of preservation. Some of this remnant in scripture, it's interesting, the, the exile was roughly 70 years long and, and it happened in sort of like staggered phases. Uh, we know that... Um, Israel was carried off before Jerusalem, and we know that in the early 500s uh, BC that, you know, we start to see this thing happen, and over time, uh, from Assyria to Babylon and, and uh, Judah and Jerusalem end up going too. Hezekiah shows Babylon the gold, and Nebuchadnezzar comes in. He's like, hey, I, I would think I want this place too. And so uh, he stations himself at Riblah and judges everybody, and they kind of go into exile from there. And before we know it, all of God's people and seemingly his promises and proximity have all been dispersed. And see, when you're in bondage, when you're in exile, when it, when, when it seems like you are far from where God wanted you to be, and I know there's people in this room this morning, and that's you, and you're like, Zach, I don't even wanna talk about promises or proximity because of how far I feel right now. But I want you to know that those promises were still being kept to Abraham, and they're still being kept to you. And the proximity, the invitation to eat at the table, even in Babylon, if you read Isaiah, if you read Jeremiah, he's saying, listen, stop trying to get out of this and instead build your house, plant your field, raise your family because I'm with you even there. I'm preserving you even there. You see, some of this remnant was at fault and some were born into it. Some of this room you can trace your bondage and your consequence back to your decisions. And some of this room, you were born into it. Some of this room, you're, you're, you're bankrupt literally right now because of someone else's decisions or something that happened to you that had nothing to do uh, with your own uh, will or decision-making. Some of you are the victims of other people's mistakes but if you notice how God makes this covenant of preservation, it's almost like he's not that concerned with who it was that was sinning before the exile took place. And that's really important for us to understand because some of the remnant was at fault 
and some were born into it, but the Lord only distinguishes between those who will listen and those who won't. And I want to ask you this morning, which one are you? Are you so caught up in how you've been wronged that you've decided not to listen to the Lord until it's right? Are you holding your obedience ransom? If you are, I want you to know the, the Lord has never stopped holding you. And that ransom was already paid. And so this morning, if you're here and, and you'd say, yeah, I get the promises and the proximity, but this is where I'm at. The Lord's not concerned as much about where you're at as you are. All of this is still true for you. And he will keep you and he will bless you in this place. I don't have my stuff figured out yet. I don't have my marriage fixed yet. We've tried every counseling. I don't have my financial situation. Zach, I'm still not what I, I'm still, I can't do this. I'm still struggling with addiction. I'm still have bondage. I still have issues. Okay, even there, wherever it is, even there, whatever, wherever, whoever, even there, the Lord is calling to himself a remnant and what identifies the remnant is the one who will say, regardless of what everybody else is doing, I will listen, I will be faithful, I will obey. And 14 more generations go by and the Messiah is born. And we know that Jesus, uh, we know that Jesus is the new covenant, right? You can come on. We know that Jesus is the new covenant. And I think, you know, again, some of you, the idea of the new covenant and um, everything Jesus means, you know, you can write volumes on it. But as I prayed into this, I, and I was asking the Lord, all right, what was it? What followed these three things? As, as Matthew was writing out, okay, Abraham, promise, David, proximity, Babylon, preservation. He wasn't writing the P words. I wrote the P words, but he wrote the other words. As he's writing this out, we get to the Messiah. We get to the fulfillment of all of these prophetic things and everything that was pointing this direction. We land on the birth of Jesus for what? And as I kind of like was going after the Lord on this one specifically, I, I felt like for today, for us, Jesus was a covenant of power. A covenant of power. The reason why a covenant of power needed to be made, well, a couple of reasons. Number one, because what power looked like to the generation that Jesus was born into, it was all wrong. And, and the father said, let me show you what power looks like. But the reason why we needed power is because for the 14 generations before this and the 14 generations before that and the 14 generations before that, all of these things were on the part of God extending his hand to us. 
He called Abraham before he was Abraham, when he was just Abram, right? Abram, by the way, was a pagan when God called him. He didn't know God from a hole in the wall, but the Lord shows up to him, extends his hand, and begins to make promises that Abram didn't deserve, didn't earn, but he responded to him. And he left everything he knew and he walked in the way God called him. And as his promises were kept and they arrived at David and, and, and proximity and intimacy and vulnerability and relationship started to take shape around this stuff, all of these things were still the Lord. Yes, he had to find hearts that received them, hearts that wanted them, hearts that accepted them and embraced them. Yes, but he found that in David, but it was still God. It was still God who said, yes, I will let you have me dwell among you. I will give you a way in which my glory can rest in your midst. And then moving forward, 14 more, well, the preservation, it was like they were hopeless without the Lord. They had no option but to just trust that God had a plan and was gonna see them through this. Whether it was their mistake or somebody else's, we're in bondage now. We're, we're in captivity now. But when Jesus shows up, something else took place. When that baby was born in that shed behind a, a, a motel, what happened is God imparted to this earth his power. His power. We say the word became flesh. The word did become flesh. But do you know how powerful that word was? That word was uttered and planets were formed. That word was, was just whispered. And the, the roaring of the oceans was separated from the, from the land. In one word, God creates everything that ever was and ever will be in one word. That's the power of that baby. That's the power of that child. And it was given to us a covenant of power, a covenant of power. Jesus comes and because he came, a way for the Holy Spirit is introduced. And because Jesus now at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us, we find a room of 120 folks being baptized in the Holy Spirit, power, power, a covenant of power. Why? Because Jesus, because Jesus is saying, it's them, they're the ones I want. Father, that's my bride. That's the ones, the ones I wanna become one with. The ones who are waiting for me. The ones who know me and they don't just want me for victory. They don't just want me for military campaigns. They don't just want me uh, for the, the blank check that I can write. They want me for the promises I made to Abraham. They want me for the proximity that we had with David. They want me for the way that I'll keep them, walk with them, hold them through whatever season they're in. They're the ones who get the power. Would you stand with me, saints?
this covenant of power is for you. All of these covenants are for you. But what does power look like in your life? If you, if you were really, if you really had the power of Jesus imparted to you, which you do, scripture says it, if you've called on the name of the Lord, you've accepted those promises, you've come into proximity, right? What would, what would Jesus's power do? You know, everybody asks like, well, what would you do if you win the lottery? Well, that's well, some kind of power. What would you wish for if you rubbed a lamp and a genie came out? Different kind of power, right? But I wanna ask like, if you really had resurrection power, how would you live? If you, if you really had the power of heaven inside you, if there was really a covenant of power made with you where the Lord is entrusting power to you, how would you live your life? Because that's how you should be living it. Whatever the answer is to that question, that's what our lives should look like. If God really was good and we weren't just bouncing around singing songs from the 90s because, because, because Jamal's on our worship team. I only do it because I like to see Jamal sing songs like that. I get a kick out of it. No, it's not true. If we really believed he was good, if we really believed he owned the cattle on a thousand hills, if we really believed that he held us through our, our, our bondage, our captivity, if we really believed that he was there in the jail cell just waiting for our praises to rise up so the, the gate would fall off the hinges and the guards would pass out. If we really believed it, how would we be living our lives? If we really had the power to walk this world in white, sanctified, purified, if we really had the, the power of redemption and resurrection in us, because we do, we do, you do. That's who you are in Jesus and that's who he is in you. And so if you're starting this morning and you're saying, okay, I'm glad this wasn't four weeks long because I'm probably not coming back next week. If you leave here with anything this morning, would you leave here with Jesus? Would you leave here with Jesus? Let's pray this prayer together. If you prayed it once or a thousand times or never before, pray it and mean it in your heart. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you for the cross. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for the power. We invite you now to come into our hearts and change our lives. We accept your forgiveness and we forgive ourselves. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This is Pastor Zach, and you've been listening to HPC Sermon Notes. Love you guys, God bless you, and have the best day of your life.